Um, we live, don't we, in what is very much uh, a health and safety conscious age. Apologies if there are any health and safety officers uh, in this morning. Uh, but we all know it. Rules and regulations abound, don't they? Warning instructions are everywhere. Uh, I guess most of us would say, well, most of the time, that's a good thing. Sometimes, however, we feel it can be taken to the point of madness, don't we, really? Um, Here are some genuine warnings that might amuse you that have been spotted on different uh, products. Firstly, warning may cause drowsiness. That was found on a packet of sleeping tablets. (laughs) Warning, wait for this one, warning, do not use for drying pets. That was found in a manual for a microwave oven. (laughs) Can you believe it? And the last one, of course, we all know, and you can see it in the supermarket every week. Warning, may contain nuts. Yes, on a bag of salted peanuts. Well, we can smile, can't we, about things like that. I'm sure those who were responsible for those warnings felt they had good reason for doing so, if only to comply with regulations. Well, this morning I've got a warning of my own, and I think we have good reason for it, good biblical reason for it, and it's this. Persecution is a danger to faith. Now, if you've never thought of that before, and you may not, some people can have a a, a kind of of romantic view almost of persecution. Well, doesn't God use it to refine his church and to spread the gospel and so on? Well, yes, God in his grace and mercy has done so many times over the years. But nevertheless, persecution is a danger to faith. And if you've never really thought about that, let me invite you to come with me to Athens, which is where the Apostle Paul was when he wrote this first letter to the Thessalonians. Uh, Do follow it uh, in your pew Bibles this morning. Uh, 1 Thessalonians, you may know, is one of the earliest of the Apostle Paul's letters that we have in the New Testament. Uh, We read of Paul's ministry in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17, in his second missionary journey. And if we were to go to that passage, we won't, but if we were, we discover that Paul, it seems, didn't spend that long in Thessalonica, maybe just a few weeks before opposition forced him to leave. He was run out of town, if you like. But by the time he had left Thessalonica, a new church of believers had been formed. And as Paul writes this letter to them, maybe a few months later, what is clear, I think, is that after Paul had left, these new Christians had themselves begun to face opposition for their faith. Paul uh, acknowledges that, doesn't he, in the first paragraph that was read to us there from verse 13 onwards. They're beginning to suffer for their faith. Paul knows about it, but more importantly, Paul is not surprised. Because we might say the starting point is to recognise that living for Christ brings opposition. Look again at uh, verse 4 of chapter 3. And sorry, I'm reading from the ESV. It should be fairly similar to to the NIV. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 4, Paul says, For when we were with you, in other words, when he had been in Thessalonica, before he had been run out of town by his opponents, when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. Do you see that? 
It's actually incredible when you think about it. Paul, as I said, hadn't been there that long. He'd only been in Thessalonica a few weeks. And yet in the short time he'd been there, and even presumably the slightly shorter time that he had to actually start teaching these new Christians about living the Christian life, in that short time, Paul made sure that he spoke to them about the opposition that the gospel brings. Isn't that incredible? For Paul, that was basic Christian teaching, what the Americans would call Christianity 101. That actually you come to faith in Christ, you start serving Christ and his gospel, don't be surprised if you start to face the world's hostility, the world's opposition. Because God's promises from Genesis 3 onwards have always met with conflict, haven't they? As the world rails against God and those who serve him. And so if we, or any Christian for that matter, is being faithful to the gospel, we shouldn't be surprised if we experience something of the world's opposition, even if it's only insult and ridicule. Jesus, the night before he was crucified, warned his disciples, didn't he? He said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. All these things they will do to you, said Jesus, on account of my name. In other words, because you represent me, you stand for me. On account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And scripture reminds us time and time and time again how challenging the Christian gospel is. Yes, it's good news for us who embrace it, but it is a challenging message, isn't it? calling people to come to Christ in repentance and faith. And the New Testament reminds us time and again of the way in which rejection of that gospel will sometimes be expressed as a hatred of those who proclaim it, those who stand by it, those who live for it. And we perhaps in this country need reminding of that because we've lived with such comparative freedom for so long. First century believers, New Testament believers, whether it's here in Thessalonica or elsewhere, were all too well aware of that, of the radical change the moment you come to Christ, that the world starts to look at you in a different way and perhaps treat you differently. But so are countless Christians around the world today. They know what it means to suffer the world's hatred of Christ Uh, This guy's name is John, John Lazarus. Uh, He's a pastor in India. I met him on uh, not my most recent trip, but a previous trip to India. He came originally from an upper caste Hindu background. Uh, When he was converted to Christ, he began a gospel ministry, started a little prayer meeting in his home. And that's when the opposition began, the Hindu extremists. Several years ago, a group of them burned his home to the ground. Sometime later... His family was attacked and his 18-year-old son stabbed to death. Still later, his teenage daughter was abducted and has never been seen again. And our partner in India uh, said that those attacks were warnings to him. A warning to stop his gospel ministry. Praise God, uh, he's still a pastor. Praise God, he has a younger son who's now become a Christian pastor. 
Praise God for the grace he pours out on his suffering people. This man's name is Banshan. Uh, he comes from the country of Laos, in the Far East. He was at one time an army officer, then he transferred over to the civil service, the way army officers sometimes do, I guess. Nice little kind of career uh, line, as we would say. And then he made a mistake. He made the mistake of becoming a Christian. And a Christian who felt that as a follower of Jesus, he should tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ. He was warned not to, not to, uh, to share his gospel, to share the gospel with, uh, with others, but he persisted. Eventually, he ended up not only losing his job, but getting arrested and serving nearly 13 years in prison, often enduring very harsh conditions, all because he sought to share the good news of Christ with others. Living for Christ brings opposition. We need to understand that. It's part of the nature uh, of that radical good news that we've come to believe ourselves. But if living for Christ brings opposition, then we ought to say that, secondly, that opposition requires us to care. To care for those who are suffering for the name of Jesus Christ we go back into the the passage that we're looking at, it's clear Paul had been anxious for these Thessalonian believers. Yes, it had been wonderful to see them come to faith in the way that it's always wonderful to see someone come to faith. Also, Paul acknowledges that all the signs were good in terms of their discipleship and growth. He acknowledges back in the very first chapter of this letter that they had quickly developed a reputation for being zealous in sharing the gospel. So all the signs, spiritually we might say, were good. And yet Paul was still anxious. Because you see, Paul knew that persecution is a danger to faith. So let's see what Paul says. At the end of chapter 2, he, he says to them, look, you know, I know, I know the situation you've been in, I know how you've suffered, I wanted to come and see you myself. But he says that circumstances hindered him, circumstances that he attributes to the work of Satan. And so eventually we get to the beginning of chapter 3, where Paul says, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, in other words, in our anxiety for you and the things that we know you're going through, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. You see that? Whatever Paul and Timothy were involved in at Athens, Paul was willing to put his work on hold, as it were, and to send Timothy to Thessalonica. Why? Well, he goes on to explain. Verse 3. So that none of you be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know we are destined for this. And then the verse I read earlier. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, and he repeats what he says in verse 1, for this reason when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and that our labour would be in vain. In other words, Paul says, I was worried that you might have fallen away on account of the opposition that you have been experiencing. Such is the pastoral heart of the Apostle Paul. For those facing affliction, opposition, threat, 
violence for their faith in Christ. Such is the pastoral heart of the Apostle Paul. And it begs the question, doesn't it, I guess, of each one of us. Do we have anything approaching that kind of heart for Christians today? Again, in some cases, like the Thessalonians, maybe new Christians, new to the faith, who suddenly start facing the world's opposition, the world's hostility, the world's hatred of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we have anything like Paul's pastoral heart? If so, we can't all go. Clearly, we can't all physically go as Timothy physically went to Thessalonica. No, we can't. But we can all be involved in the work that Timothy was sent to do. We can all be involved in that work of strengthening and encouraging our persecuted brothers and sisters. And we can be involved prayerfully, we can be involved practically, we can be involved financially. And that, of course, is what Release International exists to do. It exists to do, if you like, today, the very work that Paul sent Timothy to do all those years ago, to support and encourage and teach and strengthen Christians who are living in the midst of persecution, meeting spiritual needs, but also meeting physical needs, addressing, if you like, the whole person, caring about those who are suffering for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how do we encourage Christians here in the UK to be involved? How can Christians be involved in that work that Timothy did, in that work that Release seeks to do today? Well, a number of of fairly obvious ways, and you may have thought of these and and heard of these uh, before. Christians in this country can support that work by giving financially. We rely, of course, on the giving of Christians and Christian churches to be able to do the work that we do through our partners. I'll say over the, in the lunch talk a little bit more about how we work through partners uh, in the countries where we work. But we rely on, on the giving of Christians and churches. Now, sometimes I'll be in a church that's never really thought much about persecution before, and it's a bit of a challenge. That's not the case here. I know you, as a, as a body of believers, have supported persecuted Christians over the years and it's really a great privilege for me to be here this morning to say thank you thank you for the support that you've given over the years I know just a few months ago uh, you sent a very generous check to release for our ministry you will have received a letter from the office no doubt uh, or your administrator or whoever thanking you but can I in person thank you for the support that you've given over the years and that ongoing support is such a vital thing and such a great blessing to us to be able to to give ongoing support, because most of the work we do is not just one-off reacting to things, it's ongoing, strengthening and encouraging believers living in the midst of persecution. Let me give you just one or two practical examples. Again, I'll, I'll probably give some more over lunch, but it's nice, isn't it, just to see these things earthed in practice. Uh, one of the projects that we support through our partner in India is a pastor's conference. Now, this is a one-day event. It'll bring together 100, 200, 300 pastors, usually living in rural areas where they have faced attacks by Hindu extremists gives them Bible teaching to help them understand why Christians shouldn't be surprised by persecution, also gives them practical advice in their rights and so on, gives them times of fellowship, times of sharing, time to pray together. 
On my last two trips uh, to India, the most recent was last year, I had the privilege of of attending and indeed uh, giving some Bible input to one of those conferences. They really are terrific occasions. Um, This is Pastor Nagaraju. I spoke to some of the pastors before that conference, um, but he was one of the ones I spoke to afterwards. So he's kind of somewhere in that kind of crowd there that day. Uh, This is a pastor who has suffered repeated attacks, not just a one-off, repeated attacks during the course of his ministry. He says that many of the people in the village where he serves are affiliated members of right-wing Hindu nationalist groups. He faces the constant threat of attack. He shared and said thank you. He was encouraged by his time at the pastor's conference, uh, by the Bible teaching and the fellowship that he enjoyed that day. There's a man who hopefully, by the grace of God, has gone away strengthened and encouraged. Now, those pastor's conferences cost release typically about £1,500 to run, which to me as an individual is a fair sum of money. I guess it is for you too. Uh, But it's a drop in the ocean, really, isn't it, I guess, compared to the amount of money that we spend on Christian conferences and so on here in the UK. £1,500 equips two or three hundred pastors to be better equipped to teach and encourage their congregations living uh, with the constant threat of persecution. One more example. This lady's name is Florence. Uh, She was the first Uh, victim of persecution I I met and spoke to on my first trip to Nigeria a couple of years ago. She shared how how one night, a few months earlier, uh, a group of Islamic militants had broken into her home at night, uh, and we're going to actually watch her testimony uh, on a DVD uh, after lunch if you're staying, so I won't say too much about her story, except that uh, her teenage son and two other teenage members of her extended family were shot dead in her home by those Islamic extremists, simply because the family are Christians. As you can imagine, it was a horrific, traumatic ordeal. And one of the projects that our partner in Nigeria runs uh, is a five-day Bible-based trauma healing workshop. This brings together uh, Christians who've suffered almost unimaginable uh, violence, perhaps seen loved ones shot dead or macheted to death and so on, takes them biblically through these things, helping them to face the future in a godly way and, and bringing them, and it's the aim of the course ultimately, to bring them to the point where they can say that in Christ they forgive. Now Florence had attended one of those conferences about a week or a fortnight before I met her. She said how encouraging it had been to be in a room of 30, 40 other people who all had similar horrific stories to tell because of their faith in Christ. And she said yes, she had been brought to a point where she could now say she forgave. Those who shot dead her son, that's her son's picture she's holding up as he was hiding in the toilet. By the grace of God, she was able to forgive. Praise God for the work that he does, sustaining his suffering people. So we can give, we can get involved. There's all sorts of ways in which uh, folk get involved in releases ministry. Uh, wherever we have a connection with a church, it's always great where one person is willing to, to act as the kind of church rep for release, keeping issues of persecution uh, on the church's prayer radar. Uh, we have folk who help us run stands at events and so on around the country. One particularly valuable way that Christians can get involved um, is by writing either letters of encouragement to Christians, perhaps in prison, or by or writing letters to authorities on their behalf. 
Um, those are two booklets that explain how those projects work, and I've got copies over on the, the release table uh, over in the corner there, uh, particularly writing letters or cards of encouragement. It's coming up to that time of the year, isn't it, where we're starting to think about the, uh, the annual Christmas card writing marathon that we all go through. Um, well, what about writing a letter or card of encouragement to a persecuted Christian, maybe a pastor who's in prison and who will be in prison over the Christmas period. If you're interested in that, uh, do pick up one of those booklets. Uh, do they make a difference? Yes, they do. Uh, and we've got people who, who testify uh, to, the, to the great encouragement they have received uh, from, from receiving cards or letters from Christians around the world. And this is one example. This man's name is, is Tandin. If you get our magazine, his story was in the previous month's magazine. He's from the country of, uh, of Bhutan. He was arrested for showing the, the Jesus video film in public. He's now been released, praise the Lord, but he shared with a colleague of mine who met him uh, just what a difference it made receiving those cards and letters of encouragement from Christians around the world. He said this, he said, When we read your cards, we felt God's presence and love, and we knew that God had not forgotten us. Isn't that wonderful? You can be that word of encouragement from God to a pastor languishing in prison for their faith. Secondly, prayer, or or I should say lastly, prayer, last by no means least. Uh, Prayer is, is a vital way in which we can respond, of course, to issues of persecution. And prayer is always the first thing that persecuted Christians ask. When those of us who have the great privilege of meeting them, uh, around the world say, you know, what, what can we say to Christians in the UK? They always say first, please pray for us. Uh, prayer is always the first response to persecution. But prayer needs to be specific, doesn't it? We don't tend to pray for vague things very long. We tend to pray in an ongoing way for, for people that we know, things we know about. In other words, we need to be informed. Um, and that's why we always encourage people to receive our magazine. I don't know how many of you do so, actually get it through your letterbox. It comes out just six times a year. There it is on the screen. There it is in my hand. Same picture. That's good. Um, It comes out just six times a year. It's free. Why do we encourage people to sign up and receive that? Well, not only because the magazine informs you in terms of what's happening around the world, but it resources you to pray, to pray in an intelligible way, to pray specifically, to pray for real people in real places who are really suffering by name, as it were. There's a a prayer diary that comes with each edition of the magazine. Uh, There are copies on the table. Uh, If you don't currently receive it, do please take one uh, at some point before you go home today. And better still, uh, don't only take one, do sign up to receive it if you don't already. Say, yes, that would be really useful for me because I need all the help. Certainly I need all the help I can get to pray for other people. Don't know about you. I always say I'm brilliant at praying for this person. <laughs> I know all of my needs and frailties and failures. I don't need a prayer diary to pray for me, but I do need to be prompted to pray for other people. Um, so do consider signing up and receiving that if you don't already do so. So there's a number of obvious ways in which we can get involved. Living for Christ brings opposition. That opposition requires that we care But I want to end uh, on a positive note, and that is that caring brings great joy and blessing. And I don't just mean to persecuted Christians. I mean to those of us who care. 
and who show that we care in practical ways. So let's jump back for one last time into these verses. Remember, of course, that Paul is writing this letter to the Thessalonians after Timothy's mission. He's reporting what he did. I sent Timothy to you. Timothy has now come back and Timothy has brought good news. Now, our reading ended at at verse five and I deliberately asked that it end at verse five because I wanted these next couple of verses just to kind of hit us now fresh, as it were. So look at what Paul now goes on to say in the next paragraph, chapter three, verse six. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we, we live, says Paul, if you are standing fast in the Lord. Isn't that wonderful to see the heart of Paul there? To know that these Thessalonian Christians were remaining faithful in the face of opposition brought Paul the deepest of joy. But it also, as he says, encouraged him in the midst of his afflictions to see God's grace sustaining his suffering people. And the same can be true for you and me. As we get involved in issues of persecution, seeing God's grace sustaining his suffering people is great encouragement as we seek to walk with the Lord day by day. Sometimes bad news can seem overwhelming, can't it? I don't know if you've felt that at the end of a News at 10 bulletin and you think, gosh, that was half an hour of misery, wasn't it? And sometimes people will say, oh, persecution, yeah, I know it happens, but I I can't be doing with reading all of that bad news. Well, I know what you mean, but I would say to people like that, but you know also... Get reading and actually there is great encouragement and great blessing in those stories. Because when we do read of Christians maintaining a gospel witness in the face of affliction, in the face of threat, in the face of violence, there is evidence of the powerful, sustaining grace of God. Let me just share very briefly a couple of examples of that. These five pastors from Hyderabad in India, uh, I met them last year. They were at a pastor's lunch one day with a group of, uh, of pastors. Uh, during the, uh, the, the lunch period, a, a mob, a Hindu nationalist mob, broke in, locked the doors, began attacking them. They were armed with rods and sticks and even rocks throwing, throwing them at them. Pastor Timothy in the middle there suffered a fractured arm. Two others suffered head injuries. During the attack, the attackers were shouting, why are you converting people? Why are you following Christianity? Uh, Prabhu, that's him on second on the right, he said, we thought we were going to lose our lives that day. Well, mercifully, none of them did, although they were badly injured. And yet, you know, what is incredible and what struck me as incredible is their response to that attack. Because they take the whole thing as a challenge. Timothy said, we are going to continue our gospel work. And yes, we're willing to die for Jesus. And lastly, this lady's name is Sarah, Sarah Ambetsa from Kenya. Her husband, uh, Philip, was a church pastor. Last year, he and five members of their congregation in Lakoni, it's on the coast of Kenya, were killed when Islamic terrorists entered during a Sunday worship service and opened fire with AK-47s. More than 20 other people were injured during that attack. You can imagine that the panic and the screaming and so on. When Sarah realised that her husband was dead, 
She said she prayed to the Lord, he is yours and you have chosen to take him. May your name be glorified. And you know what? She says that she continues to pray each day that God will change the hearts of those who attacked the church, that they may come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. That's the grace of God, isn't it? Giving somebody the ability to respond in that way to something so horrific. Now, people like Sarah, like those guys in Hyderabad, they're not super Christians. They're ordinary people like you and me. Weak, frail, sinful, redeemed human beings like you and me. And when we share their stories, it's not to put them on a pedestal. It's not that we might look at them with awe and praise and so on. Their stories glorify what? Their stories glorify the amazing grace of God. And their response to what they have suffered. And that is to our blessing. Persecution is a danger to faith. Paul knew that. And as we've seen from God's word, Paul cared enough to act. To do something, namely send Timothy to Thessalonica. To do something in order to strengthen and encourage those who were suffering for Christ. So what about us? What about you? Will we be able to echo the words of the Apostle Paul as we think about persecuted Christians today? Will we be able to say, for now we live knowing you are standing fast in your faith?